You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. I'm very pleased for episode 74 to feature Colin Molding. Colin was the bassist and co-frontman for XTC, which put out, let's say, 14 albums between 1978 and 2000. You're listening right now to one of his big hits, Making Plans for Nigel, from 1979's Drums and Wires. Since XTC broke up, Colin has remained largely silent, but has now released an EP under the moniker TCNI in collaboration with former XTC drummer Terry Chambers. The EP is called Great Aspirations. We're going to be talking about Scatter Me and Kenny from that project. And looking back to some of Colin's final works with XTC, a song called Say It, recorded in 2002, and we'll conclude with Where Did the Ordinary People Go, released in 2005 as a single. I believe you can get both these on the 2005 Apple Venus box set. I encourage you to go to facebook.com slash tc&imusic for more information. And for more about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. To support what we're doing, please make a pledge at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. As will probably become evident here, XTC has long been one of my favorite bands. There's about a year of college that I listened to almost nothing else. So we freely reference the other frontman Andy Partridge, as well as guitarist Dave Gregory and original member keyboardist Barry Andrews. Now, here we go. Hello, Colin. Good morning. Oh, good morning, Mark. Hello, folks. This is Colin from uh, TCNI, formerly XTC, of course. Well, let's get to it. I will have played a little bit of Making Plans for Nigel just to remind folks of who you are and the XTC heyday. But we want to get pretty quickly to the new EP. So TCNI, Great Aspirations EP. The first song we're going to discuss at length is Scatter Me. Do you want to give an introduction Terry and I, remember Terry Chambers, he's the original drummer from XTC, played on all the early stuff like Making Plans for Nigel, and he and I teamed up together last summer for an EP. The EP's called Great Aspirations, and the first track which we're going to talk about is Scatter Me, which seems to be the kind of lead track on the EP, and it's about, uh, what can I say, the ultimate end, but there are redeeming factors here. It is a positive song about death, I suppose. Scatter me, meaning one's ashes. And I don't know if you come across these little shrines. I go walking on the downs sometimes near my home, and we come across these kind of shrines where people's ashes have been scattered. And I guess this must have had an effect on me because this song popped out. You see a photograph, and then you see a bouquet of flowers. It's in the middle of nowhere, and you're thinking, well, obviously, this is where this person has walked once upon a time and wanted to make a statement that they were here on this earth. And I thought it was a very nice statement. It's very reminiscent of a song that was around really in the early 70s by a band called McGuinness Flint. It was called When I'm Dead and Gone. And it, that sentiment is all stuck in my head. Uh, it, I think the lyric was, oh, oh, when I'm dead and gone, I want to leave some happy woman living on. I thought that was a very fine sentiment. And here we are over 40 years later, and that sentiment has popped out again. Scatter me far and wide Up in the hills where we walked Although the wind may blow cruelly Scatter me my one and only 
Yeah, certainly a much more peppy song than Dying. 
<laughs> that you'd written before. So I don't know whether it's the content of the song or just what it's actually about and the associations that I have with that that pretty much had me practically weeping the first time or two hearing this before, you know, even though it's obviously joyous, but wasn't sure if you'd hit something particularly magical. There's a lot of very sparkly stuff in the arrangement, and it's just, you know, a very joyous, singable melody, but it's hard to disambiguate, at least in the first couple of listens, the effect of the music from the effect of what you're talking about. That, in other words, you could have delivered that message in a variety of ways, and it still would have, at least for people with the requisite experience, you know, who have scattered somebody's ashes within the last 10 years or something, would set that off. Well, I'd like to harness the bittersweet mm. in a song. I think that's the most potent way of putting over a song, in a bittersweet way. So if you have a sad lyric, then the music's got to be a little bit more joyous. You can't have all one flavor. If you're singing a sweet melody, then I think it's got to be tinged with some sort of angular or a little bit of the other side of the coin, you know, a little bit of bittersweet. That's the way I think about songs these days. Uh, If they're too all one flavor, I'm very often I'm recoiling and I'm thinking, well, this is too sweet or it's too bitter or whatever. For Scatter Me, I think I pretty much got it about right. It's not a subject that everyone likes to talk about, but I thought if I could talk about it in a joyous way, that gives people hope and glory. And I feel that you need the two together to make a successful song. And I think this is quite successful in the way it's put over, you know. Well, yeah, after you've got the hugely joyous chorus, then you go into this. It's very reminiscent of other sort of the classic XTCB section, the scatter me part where the scatter me and it sits there. I was just listening to too many cooks in the kitchen, you know, one of your older, which also has that kind of, you know, many Andy songs have this, quite a few of your songs have this where it goes to another place. But usually as with cooks in the kitchen, it doesn't stay there very long that what we need is law and order part. It sort of resolves pretty quickly to get back to the head. Whereas this, it just it's a nice variation on that because it, it has that harmonic movement to this somewhat unexpected place like that. But then it just sits there a while and having a little sax jamming of all things, which is not quite in the same sonic flavor as this Lady Madonna-esque piano part and what you've had before, it you know adds a nice little extra dimension to the song that you actually have this bittersweetness is not just the contrast between the lyrics and the music, but in this movement to this second part. Well, the second part is probably a lot more atmospheric because there's only two lines that are delivered, you know. It's kind of, be careful where you tread because my ashes are around, you know, and they're blowing everywhere. And it's a little bit of a thoughtful section and I wanted it to be very atmospheric, so we were going to put all sorts of instruments into this and make it really kind of English Gothic. It's got saxophone, it's got synthesizer, it's got Farfisa organ, it's even got voices whispering, and just wanted to make it very atmospheric, like some sort of, I don't know, house on the moors or something. A little bit of Kate Bush in there as well. Although the way that section ends, the... And then is that a high harmonic bass note? It ends on a Farfisa organ chord, yeah. That's the spooky organ sound. Having a nice little rhythmic thing to get out of the gothic section, again, that's not like a Bauhaus move to go da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, that's a very <laughs> cheery way to get out of the atmospheric section. Yes, it needed to come to a full stop, you know. You've got a couple themes that work in here. I mean, as soon as bang a gong you know that you you have this parallel rhyme scheme that you know recalls the bang a gong song again for me listening to that the first 
time or two, like my ear just goes like a magnet to that one, a bit of the song Bang a Gong, Get It On starts going through my head in the middle of the thing. And you got to kind of <laughs> listen to a couple times to, for that to just, you know, become a literary illusion rather than actually bringing a second song into the mind. Yes. Well, my apologies to Mark Boland, really, but um, I'm showing my youth here, I suppose. But I thought banging a gong was very joyous. And I thought that was the most joyous middle line that I could think of. And living on, bang a gong and sing a song. You know, that was the most joyous triple line I could find, I think. So uh, my apologies to Mark Boland, but I stole it unashamedly, yes. And then the fact that you used the wedding imagery twice. So you got wedding gown white for ashes and wedding bell rice for ashes, you know, which of course are, are thrown in the same way. So it's a big day. <laughs> the scattering of something, you know. Uh, you scatter rice. And also there's lines in the end of the second verse which um, say, um, once there was made these three wishes, dandelions blown with three kisses. Mm. So you blow the seeds of a dandelion and they scatter as well, you know. But just the, the bringing in the wedding imagery that kind of, not only is it a joyous occasion, it's a joyous yeah. <laughs> life marker, <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, it's something you might do, you know. You scatter your husband's ashes, you might do it in your wedding dress that you married him in, you know. It's kind of a romantic gesture and I think somebody's probably done it. That It's kind of taking the story probably a step onwards, but I think some people might do that. And then the swoopy opera voice, which ends up being, if not actually sampled to create that effect at the end, <laughs> what exactly is happening at the very, the very end? The string thing that's swooping down and then swooping back up? Well, we found this ghostly noise on the synthesizer. Okay. And I thought, yeah, this has got something like wind blowing through a valley or something. And because it felt like wind blowing and changing pitch as well, I thought, oh, this sounds really spooky. And I thought, that's perfect. We've got to include some of this. So we, you know, it's just a sound that we discovered. Getting the opera singer in as well, I think um, it's just those notes came to me. And I thought, I wonder if an opera singer could sing this. Would that be too over the top? And I. Uh, and we had this local girl singer, and she offered to come to, over to my house, and we set up the mics in the kitchen, and she really let rip, you know. But she had me reaching for my controls because she was so loud. You know, one of these opera singers that can shatter a, a glass, you know. So it was pretty loud stuff to harness, but she was a fantastic singer, you know. Yeah, the way that lets loose, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it just, maybe there's a police song in which this happens or something, I couldn't find the reference that I was thinking of, but where there's a singer like that and it actually breaks completely out of tune. Because that even when she's singing in this song, you know, on, it still has that almost frightening quality that this great power is coming to bear. There's a lot of power there. I wanted to include some sort of female voice as well, because there's not only the chap that's kind of his ashes being scattered, but there's a person who's scattering it, and it's generally a woman if, in the case of the man dying. So I thought that would be quite good if we could touch base with the uh, female factor, you know. Well, let's get our second song from the EP on the table, just to, so we can talk more generally about both of them. Kenny, so the third song on the EP, give us a little introduction to that. Okay, folks, we're moving swiftly on. So this is another track from the EP, Great Aspirations. And this one's called Kenny. And I think it very much sounds like the motion of a train. See what you think. Here we go.
leaders the tension the car bar bottom feeders in Milton Keynes they planned until they burst in Coventry the Germans got there first Reading, Swindon, Temple Meads, the lungs are knackered but the teeth are clean
very basic main riff here, you know, has this sort of stupidly happy guitar sound, has a more characteristically Terry drum part, to my ears at least. You know, if Scattered Me was all I got out of him, that's tight, but it's, you're playing eighth notes and he's doing a backbeat for the most of the song. But with Kenny, you know, you've got the few little extra flourishes in there and then parts where you explode in percussion, that funky rhythm section thing that's going in the main part of the song. It's the most XCC sounding song that you've got on here. Well, Terry was always very good at hi-hattery, you know, and you may remember his hi-hat song on Generals and Majors around that disco time as well, especially with hi-hats. I mean, he just likes hi-hat work. So I got him to play this hi-hat thing on Kenny. The guitar on Kenny, that was my first inclination, was that it sounded very much like um, the movement of a train. And then all sorts of things popped into my head about what you see from the windows of a train. In England, you see the back end of the town do you see the playing fields where people are playing football and cricket some of you may recall in philip larkin's poem the wits and weddings where he describes what he sees from a train from hull to london and he's saying oh you see somebody coming up to bowl you know and i thought somebody coming up to bowl yeah or somebody coming into the tackle in football or something you know So I thought, well, the playing fields are disappearing and they're being built on at a vast rate. And I thought, well, that's the premise for my song. And although we have the name Kenny, I think Kenny is just the central figure in the landscape. He's the guy that made a name for himself locally as a great footballer. In fact, we knew a few Kennys and one of them was a professional footballer. But that's by the by. The principle of the song, I think, really is the disappearance of the waste grounds and the playing fields where imagination is nurtured. And people very often on on these waste grounds and these playing fields, these are the seeds of what they become, professional footballers or, or anything, really. In this case, it is about football. It's a kind of a football song in a way. So there's lots of things going on here. There's the movement of a train, There is a kind of an essence of a football song as well, but principally, although we have Kenny, it is about the building of the on the playing fields and the waste grounds where kids' imaginations are nurtured, you know. Yeah, it's not that often that you have a rock song about basically civic responsibility or mourning for the neighborhood has gone to hell. You know, we had Boarded Up, which was a similar sort of longing for the past and how things were more engaged more and more life experience less the the perils of modernity or something like that <laughs> some sort of protest against that you know without being too over the top here the football song thing i wasn't sure exactly how literal to take this cuz you've got you know actual chanting here and then you've got the trumpet that takes over that has a very wide world of sports aaron copeland rip off sort of uh, <laughs> flavor to it we have this thing in on a saturday night called match of the day and the theme tune to match of the day is very much that tijuana brass sound which herb alpert made quite famous in the 60s it's got a very tijuana sound to the theme tune and i purposely wanted that essence on the last choruses of kenny you know kind of a joyous thing about football really but not only about football i suppose it's about the disappearance of allotment plots and just where kids can catch tadpoles in a stream and or everything really to do with kids growing up so we have the tijuana sound at the end and that's match of the day you know which i'm a little surprised that you got two gestures in the song you've got that and then this 
thing that's in the intro that's reflected a little bit, the very end of the song where you've got the one note that comes back in that it's not the same pitch, it's an octave or several down, but just starting off the song with that one piercing little note where you've already got material in the song where you could have started the song with that trumpet say, so you kind of establish that the match of the day flavor and then jump into it. Say something about how those two different gestures stuffed in the same song, what order those would come in or what made you feel like you needed that intro there? Well, the actual intro that you hear with that piercing note at the beginning is actually a sample of a continuous string note, violin, I would say, or viola. So we looped it and we discovered that the sound of the bow sounded very much like the noise that's created when a train is in the distance and it's coming down the track. You know, it's got that kind of... that kind of like wind or something, vibrating wind. It sounded very much like, well, here we go, the train is in the distance and it's coming down the track. So we thought, oh, that'd be great to use because here we have the motion of the train with the guitar and people will get the idea. And then the first break comes and we have this kind of noise which sounds like a train in the distance. Swindon, where I come from, is very much a railway town. So you can't do much else but talk about the railways when you come to Swindon, really, because Brunel chose Swindon as the place where his carriage and wagon works would be, midway between Bristol and London, right smack bang in the centre of good old England, and that's where we are. Sadly, the railway works are closed now, but it's obviously... uh, still in my heart, you know. So, uh, yes, here we are featuring railways at the center of the song. I had not taken it that literally in in terms of, yeah, it has that train movement, but actually interpreting the as the train chooka-chooka sound had not even for some reason occurred to me. Maybe because that's one image, but it's not like the whole song is about trains or something like that. It's not even, what is the la-di-da-da-da-da-da? Like, that isn't connected neither, obviously, to the match of the day trumpet sort of thing or to a train thing. So you've got this extra element here. That's just the playground flavor there. Well, the actual tune, la-di-da-da-da-da-da, is London Bridge is falling down, really. But it's a kind of a mocking, a mockery of people who in control, you know. The English have always loved to mock authority, you know. And here we have uh, grinning mayors in local papers shaking hands with business leaders, just... These big wigs are making all the decisions, and this is just getting back at them and just saying, well, the tension, the carp, our bottom feeders, you know, it's just a little mocking kind of rhyme. But something that would be, as I said, there's lots of things going on here, but it, it would be something that would kind of might be sung at a football match as well, you know. Yeah, there's lots of things going on, I will agree. Not only the train, but the football thing, and then the playing fields, and so it's a a good slice of old England, really. How do you feel about the power of music to achieve political goals? Like, it's a protest song, but just saying, Rotten Council, and and then having (laughs) this mocking thing, this is not straightforwardly biting in such a way that, oh, this is stabbing at the heart of the governmental establishment. You know, it's give peace a chance. Somebody's going to stand up and take notice. This kind of social commentary seems it's more expressing a sentiment not actually thinking that something can be achieved by you know bringing this issue to light i don't think you can really have a rant and a rave about it i think you can just point things out to people and they'll know what you're on about you know i think that's just basic songwriting etiquette really i don't think people like to be preached at but i think people generally get a grasp of what it's about this is the only way i could 
have a pop at them, I suppose. They'll get what you're about if they're British, at least, because... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so, yeah. In Milton Keynes, they plan until they burst. In Coventry, the Germans got there first. Then listing the towns, the lungs are knackered, but the teeth are clean. I know what a lot of those words are. I know what a lot you're referring to World War II or something, but I'm not getting the specific references here. The joke being that the Germans made a better job of planning the towns than what the town planners did. That's the joke, you know. Uh-huh. By blowing them up? Is that what you're... Yeah, by flattening the place, basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a kind of a joke in poetical circles about people like John Betjeman and about the bombs dropping on Slough and stuff. That joke was made probably in the 1960s, but I've regurgitated it just for my song, really. Can you say something about this break section where, I guess it's the guitar solo and you've got this you know, percussion all over the place? That seems a very fun explosion of sound there. an explosion of football rattles going off, people shouting, and that's supposed to be the, the football field. Is that layering in like an atmospheric recording, or that's you guys getting far away from the mics and yelling and trying to sound like you're, <laughs> you're outside? That's us. That's kind of us going, hey, oh, here we go, oh, yeah, all this kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and, well, it was good fun to do, you know letting off football rattles and percussion and stuff and just generally making a racket that one might hear at a football match. or So you've got the, the football song coming through again. So there's lots of things going on here, but I hope, I hope people get a general gist of, of what I'm trying to say and uh, the atmosphere I try to create. But yes, for our American cousins, it's slightly more difficult, I will agree. Again, the, the saxophone fits very well. Especially this, you know, is he playing a, a baritone? Set? You know, these... Dub, 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 dub. Yeah, I think he is playing a baritone sax because it's, they blow this thing at football matches. is like a kazoo. And it's kind of got this, like a horn, continuous kind of kazoo kind of horn thing. And I thought, well, the baritone sax is probably the nearest to that. We'll try and get it to play something a bit more musical than that. But uh, his role is essentially rhythmic, I think, yes. You know, if you had a sax in the band, there's no way that you would have him play that verse over the See the Wonder of Allotment Plots, etc. And then not have him do something right after that, where you go back to the chorus, let's go down to where the dream is made. Can't the sax keep playing the lead riff or something? But the fact, you know, that this is a tightly arranged thing and not just somebody that's part of the band that's standing in the room with you. Just interesting that you shift the flavor away and you just toss that element away at that point. Yes, well, we wanted a bit more glory at the end. But it's actually the same guy who played the sax in the second verse and in the middle. He plays the trumpet at the end as well. Ah, okay. A multi-talented chap, Alan Bateman, yes. And uh, he's local, he's a very good player, and yes, he did a grand job. So we, we just wanted something a bit more glorified at the end, I suppose. So I know you're still doing, you're doing rehearsals. Are you already prepping for the next recordings of this unit after this four-song appetizer? Or are you going to play live? Or what, what's happening with this group now? Well, I think we're going to take it one step at a time, you know. We actually don't quite know what we're going to do. We might play a few gigs, but we don't want to get on the same treadmill as what we were all those years ago. We'll play a few shows, I'm sure, but um, we both like recording, so I think we'll do a bit of both. But I don't think there's really any plans to do a full record, a full album, because it just takes too much out of you, you know. You know, it takes a long time to write, and then 
even longer to record. You know, we record ourselves, so and we haven't a band as such, so obviously it takes much longer because there's just two of us making the sound at any one time. So I think the plan is is just to play it by ear and do what we feel, you know. We can have a bit of fun. Although I say fun, we're very serious about making the music. We're not holding back, put it that way, in regard to making the music. But it's just the stuff that comes afterwards, we can please ourselves a bit more because we don't have record company pressure to do this, that, and the other, you know. We can we are our own paymasters, so we can. there's no big hassle there, you know. We can do what we please. I know it's very hard for any musicians to make a living now with piracy and all that stuff. And the fact that, you know, the legitimate things like Spotify just don't pay very much at all. On the other hand, you have a captive, I want to say a captive audience, but you have an established fan base, let's say, that is dying. You know, I was so thrilled that this was coming out you know, to hear anything from you at all at this point. And there are things like Patreon, you know, or whatever that you could pretty much create one thing at a time, collect money potentially, even in advance for, you know, one recording at a time and kind of get a much more immediate reward than let's release one giant long album and then we have to tour for a year on it or something like that. You know, it's a much different, seemingly, is this environment, the technological environment for releasing things, much more amenable to your desired lifestyle at this point? Although the cost of recording has come down somewhat from years ago, you mm. used to record in all the top studios and whatnot. Luckily, we've gleaned enough information that we can record ourselves, so there's obviously a saving in cost on the recording, and digital recording is cheaper than what it used to be, you know. Just thankful that we can actually release stuff, and it still costs money to put it out, you know, so we're thankful that we can recoup the cost and make a small profit. That's something that's come about through digital technology and acquiring more experience about recording. And I have a setup in my garage and we run lines into the house if we want to record something really separate. And, you know, we have a facility that we can make records, but, you know, it's still expensive kind of paying people and making physical product to put out there, you know. But luckily we can cover ourselves because, as you say, we have a fan base that we can draw on and it's large enough that we can cover our costs. So uh, it's a good situation. Well, let's turn to our third song. I want to look back to 2000, I guess this was recorded in 2002, Say It, which I had not heard until when I was preparing for this interview. I was not aware that this was, uh, you had a beautifully recorded gem like this sitting in the back there. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say it, but uh, <laughs> I finished you should say it about Say It. Say It is actually the last thing that I recorded for XTC. And it's not particularly well recorded because I didn't know too much about recording then and the band didn't feel inclined to put up the money to have it recorded properly. Because at the time, I think Andy had kind of set in his mind that I don't think he wanted to make another XTC record. But I just wish that we could have talked about it and that we could have agreed not to together and, and then I could have not wasted a lot of time, really. But it was scheduled to be on the forthcoming XTC record that never was. So I think it got put out in about 2005, I think. I think it came out on a little selection from the Apple Venus sessions and the Wasp Star sessions as a kind of a, a supplement a couple of new songs that we put on this Apple Box thing, you know, which is probably the last thing that got released as a band. And uh, I just thought it deserved, and who knows, it may get another outing, but I just think it deserved a little better than what it got. And that's why 
I'd like to give it an airing today because it's, I think, a, a little forgotten gem, I think. to hear that you were recording yourself back at this point I had thought going into this new EP you know I know you'd you'd mentioned how you'd started recording yourself just your voice for doing these collaborations over the internet with the prog box folks yeah but actually recording drums in your house is a whole different world you know getting a decent environment getting the the mics to do that but so you were doing that even back here on Say It. Well, Mark, I was trying to do it, put it that way. <laughs> and I think it's the poor relation of the recording because I didn't know too much about recording drums at the time and it's quite a skill. I think we've got better at it, but we're not trained sound engineers, you know, because our mind is diverted elsewhere on the writing of the thing and whatnot. So yeah, this came at a bad time, put it that way. But I wanted it out there and I thought, well, I'm going to record it because this may be its last chance to be heard. So we kind of went for it. But I don't think Andy's even on it. It got very much like the White Album with the Beatles. You know, we're just recording our own stuff now. And Andy's not on Say It and I'm not on Spiral, which was the other song that he put out. So things were getting very fragmented at this particular time. 
you know, the last days of Rome, really. And the band was obviously in the throes of breaking up. That's what bands do eventually. We obviously had different agendas that we wanted to do. And I just as Englishmen, I just wish we could have talked. But that's the English way. We're kind of a buttoned up race. We could have not wasted each other's time by going through the charade of thinking that there may be an XTC record when there never was going to be, you know. Well, yeah, and the press, I think, was very misleading at the time because it was pitched as Apple Venus 1 was the songs that you all had written from, you know, 93, 94, and then Apple Venus 2 was 95, 96, something. I remember seeing something like that as if then there was this subsequent glut of material that was just waiting for the next one. And now that the strike is over, you had all this pent up material that was just going to be released. The two albums, they sound great. You had more control over your musical destiny. You're on an indie label that way, but yet, it, you know, I was seeing them on soundtracks. I was hearing them around. I don't know if they were getting massive airplay, but I wouldn't expect you know, a band that sounds like that in that particular year. I wouldn't expect much to get massive airplay from any sort of veteran artist. So yeah, that was surprising that then it just kind of went on and then uh, we're, we're going to wrap this up by playing Ordinary People. So that was, oh, there's a new thing on iTunes that was again, what, 2005 or so. Just to comment on the on the demise of the band, we did have all that material for Apple Venus 1 and 2 or Brackets Wasp Star. But that's the reason why Dave left in 97, because he wanted to put out one album, and he thought it was one album's worth of good material. But Andy said, no, we're going to put out the two, we're going to do the orchestral stuff, and then we're going to do the rock stuff. Of course, that's all, all well and good, providing the strength of the material is there, and in my opinion, it wasn't. But there you go, there was a difference of opinion about the material. I think it could have been one album. But having released the first one, which is more orchestral, went around the globe promoting it and saying, that hey, the other stuff, hang on, the other stuff's coming, you know. So we ended up having to put it out. But I remember a phone call I had with Andy, and I said, well, don't you think we ought to take six months off and try and write some new stuff? And he said, oh, no, 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 we're going to put it out, you know. So it was a difference of opinion amongst the three of us, really. As a fan, I can say that, you know, while I wish you had had more songs on both of the albums, I feel like Wasp Star is, there was a point where I was just spinning that constantly, where I find that if I had to point to one album that's not classic 60s Beatles or something like that as a perfect album to me, that's a contender. I don't know. So that's just one opinion anyway. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, obviously, everybody's got a, an opinion. <laughs> and uh, so I'm looking at it from one perspective and you from another, so... Let's talk more specifically about Say It, because I think that song is definitely up to snuff with anything that's on Wasp Star. It's got shades of English Music Hall, I think. A little bit of Noel Coward in there, I think. Probably it springs from stuff that McCartney did with the Beatles, like When I'm 64 or Martha, My Dear, that kind of English Music Hall stuff. With a little more interesting chords, you know, at least to start. You've got this, you know, kind of dark, chord clusters here before it opens up into this pretty, the swooping thing and by the end of the, the intro that it, it's got the country song it's doon, 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 you know and that's all just in the intro Yes, well the, what makes it interesting is obviously the way the melody falls on some of those dark chords, you know Yeah, I just wanted to say something about being with the one that you're with, it says here Say it very soon, when you take your tea and toast don't leave the house without saying whose toast you love the most 
don't take your partner for granted kind of thing. You know, the words you should say, obviously, is I love you. You know, stick around. A lot of people don't say those words and they end up at the cemetery gates with egg foo young on their face, you know. Yeah, it's just a, a simple sentiment saying, you know, value the people that stick around. They don't disappear. They're, they're with you, you know. And these electric guitar riffs here, so is that... You doing that, or is that the uh, Duncan Maitland I see, I, I found online that you had a few different guests on this? I think I played the guitar, but I think he reprocessed it through his certain item of equipment. So I think I played the notes, but he, I think he reprocessed it. I like the descending line down through those chords, a little bit of JS back, you know. Sure, very tasteful little licks. When, when you're doing lead guitar, are you punching in a lot? You know, so you're kind of writing it riff by riff, or do you feel comfortable enough that even when you're doing the lead parts, you're more or less mapping out the song and doing a performance of it? No, I'm kind of basket really. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just play a whole mess of stuff, and then we'll pick the bones of it and see which sounds best. It's a simple line, and I I think I like simple lines over clusters of chords. You know, I think if one's dense and bittersweet, then the other should be fairly simple, and it's finding things that match. It's like harmonies. If somebody's holding a note, then the, you can be a bit more busier over the single note. You know, it's just musical etiquette, I think, uh, to do that. So, yeah, but it's important that it just comes natural. That's the thing. You obviously overplay. Everybody overplays, but then you strip it down. You strip it back. I get that with bass lines. I just play a whole mess of stuff, and they think, right, I like that bit. Don't like that bit. Right, that's what you've got to do then. You've got to do that bit, but not that, you know. Sometimes I'll sing it, you know, sing the bass line, and then we'll play what I've just sung. You can do it better that way. You don't have to worry about making mistakes. You know, you can just follow your whim. Sure. I was surprised to hear in a, another interview how you generally layer on the bass last, because often the bass line, you know, maybe this is because I'm a bass player, <laughs> it's my first instrument, is the thing that often defines the song, not so much in the ones that we've heard today, but so many of the XTC songs, you know, have very prominent McCartney-esque bass lines that just pop out. So the fact that you're potentially doing those last, that it, you know, has the quality of a, a lead vocal almost to me for some things. You can place yourself in the landscape just where you want to when everything's on there. I mean, the XTC never used to rehearse. That was the thing. You know, I used to send my demos through to Andy and he'd send me his, and, but there was not a lot of rehearsal. And very often you, you ended up putting the track down and just playing along to the demo. But I had the facility to actually get a two-track of what we've recorded so far, certainly on lots of oranges and lemons stuff and non-such, the engineer, I say, well, well, I want a two-track of what we've got so far. And then, of course, that's the actual recording with the guitars or and the drums already down. And so I was able to put that on into my computer and just play along with it and see which fitted and... It just saves an awful lot of expensive studio time because back then it was very, very expensive to record. So it doesn't do to kind of be trying to work out your part when the clock is ticking, you know. But having said that, we didn't ever used to rehearse. So this was principally my chance to kind of absorb what the song needed, really. So I was very fortunate because I was able to uh, actually play along with what is going to be kept. That's what I used to do. That's the way I used to, even sessions, I used to take my Porter studio and just get a two-track of, of the track as it was. And then I'd go upstairs to my room and then rehearse to the actual track that's going to come out. 
so it's a good way of knowing what fits. So you'd be comfortable enough with it that you, when you actually get to the session that you're more, again, more or less doing a performance or multiple performances and they're choosing the best bits from that, or you're still piecing it together. Let me play the verse now, and then we stop, and then now I'm going to play the chorus, and then maybe I better listen to what I did on verse one so I could <laughs> match that in verse two, that kind of thing. I used to record a Porta Studio like that as well and, and be punching in, sort of, sort of writing the part as I was going through. Yeah, I think that's a good way, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to, uh, if you're not a band and you can't rehearse, then it's great to have the track that you're going to be playing to, you know. Because demos all sound different. They're always different. A lot of people try and repeat the demo mercilessly, you know. We've got to have it exactly like the demo, but demos have, generally have a different feel, you know. It's, it's very difficult much better to play to actually what's going to be kept. Well, yeah, if you have a whole different drummer that you're not even particularly perhaps used to, unless you're, again, making the drummer match exactly what was on the demo, or was that more or less what you would do at that time, that you had all these different drummers, but you you or Andy had a very definite idea of exactly what they were going to do? Uh, yeah, to a point, and I think it's always good to let the musician kind of let him off the leash a bit. Otherwise, what's in it for him? If he's just got to repeat your demo, then probably get a machine to do that. It's good to have that 5-10% where he can go wild a little bit. You never know what will happen. Of course, as I say, recording back then was expensive, so you couldn't have too much of that. But Depends how bands arrive at that situation. A lot of bands rehearse incessantly, you know, so they actually know exactly what they're going to do. Right now, we've got the facility to actually, if I do a vocal in my garage, I can come back. If it's not any good, I can come back the next day. But when you're making an album in an expensive studio at £1,000 a day, perhaps, you don't have that facility. (laughs) You know, you're put on the spot and you've got to get it right. And uh, that's a lot of pressure. It's great having your own facility to come and go as you please on the track. And I see on Say It, the same place that I found the credit says that drums on this were Lee Moulding. What relation is that? That's my boy, yeah. Okay, wow. He's a drummer. I wanted a real human being on it, so I, and he was the only drummer I knew at the time, uh, certainly in the vicinity. And uh, he's pretty steady, he plays the click quite well, so I just wish I could have recorded him better. Is he still out there playing? Is he in bands at this point? He's still out there playing, and he has a band, yes. Something about the machine, a time machine or something. The band name seems to change with regularity that I I lose track. I have kids in high school now to to try to train them to be some of my backing musicians, to to get them whatever it is that I don't play. Exactly, yeah, it's cheap that way. (laughs) It's very, very efficient to raise a drummer. I had to just become the drummer that I wanted to hear. That's my solution to that, of, of just playing it more and more on my own as a, as a form of relaxation. So what were you doing musically? Had you touched the bass for a number of years before coming back to this? Before we made Great Aspirations, well, not too much on the bass, but I, as I say, as we talked about earlier, I got invite from a lot of the prog rockers in, in the States on the West Coast of America, and uh, they invited me to sing on a few things. Basically, the Yes Camp for uh, Rick Waitman and Jeff Downs. It was actually Billy Sherwood that, who actually plays bass with Yes now. That He invited me to do a whole lot of stuff. And so I thought I was at a loose end at the time. When the band kind of split up, I was kind of, I really didn't want to know about anything. You were not going to go join Pink Floyd then? That was a thing that was floated, that when Roger Waters left, that you were invited at that point as a world-renowned bassist, that you would have had a lot of opportunities to jump in. You know, if you wanted to tour, even at that point, even in addition to XTC. That- well, that was going back a bit. That was 1989. 
we had a manager called Tarquin Gotch, and he knew Dave Gilmore. And, uh, and then I had a phone call from Dave Gilmore to say, you know, did I want to come down to rehearsals? And, and uh, I said, to what end? He said, well, to go on a world tour. And well, I said, well, I've, you know, I'm in XTC, so I have to, I want to write songs for XTC, you know. And that sounds an awful lot of time out of your life. He sensed my reticence and he moved on. I talked myself out of a job, I think. <laughs> but uh, I don't think I was ever considering it, to be honest. That lifestyle, there's a lot of, oh, it was Andy who decided that we're not going to tour anymore and everybody else wanted to tour and Terry wanted to tour so much that he just left the country in disgust. Having that band dissolve then did not, maybe at, at a more advanced age then, you know, didn't make you want to... Well, I guess what Dave's doing now, right? That he's playing with Big Big Train and other things, you know, to get out in front of people and continue a career. It's slightly different because obviously when, when we finished touring in 82 through Andy's stage fright, for want of a better expression, I mean, Andy and myself were married guys and we had kids and I wanted to see my kids grow up. And the other two guys were free agents, you know, they were single guys and they were kind of, it's a young man's game, a single man's game. Besides that, I think if you write songs and you're a writer and, and you've always got a friend, there's always this mistress back home, you know, that you can visit. And it's this other thing that you do. It's not just about playing in front of an audience because you have a this something that you do. And that's back home when everything's quiet. And I think for Andy and myself, we always have this friend back home that we could uh, rely on to bring us out of ourselves and to create. The other two didn't have that. I felt for Andy, in a way, because although I felt that touring was something that perhaps you had to do to complete the picture, to to push the records and stuff, a part of me was saying, well, you'll have more time to write now, you know, so that's got to be a great thing. And up to a point it was. In less you know, stringent conditions than a hotel room or something, yes. Yeah, you didn't want to ride, never wrote on the road. You had to be quiet at home and be normal, you know. And then things started to come. But um, there comes a point where, and I think Todd Rundgren expressed this in a recent interview, that um, that became XTC's reason for existing was just that record every two years. And maybe that put too much pressure on doing this thing on making this record, it's just too much pressure on it. The pressure needed to be dissipated with actually playing live and just having fun and playing amongst ourselves. So perhaps one part of it was over-pressurized, uh, and that's an interesting point too. Well, yeah, especially at the rate in which things were released and the amount of care that had to go in them, that it's a very different compare it to the, what the Beatles did, but the Beatles then produced a record or even multiple records every year and were just overflowing with stuff. And that pressure cooker didn't last nearly as long as you folks did in your studio phase anyway. So it's not a very stable situation. And you know, if you just think of like the amount of output that somebody at a regular job, right? if you're going and doing something every day, so if going every day you're a recording artist, that is your job, and yet there's only one output every two years... <laughs> That's insane. All the effort has to flow into that one little thing. Yeah, yeah, that was a good point to make. Uh, but, you know, with the Beatles, certainly around the time of the White Album, they could, you know, if Paul McCartney had a song, he could ring up any engineer, maybe George Martin, but if he was busy, he'd get somebody else, and he would go into Abbey Road, and he would lay something down. 
you know, you can do that when you've got that sort of power, you know. With the likes of us, we had to squirrel things away until such time as we were more or less ready to make a record. And we had the money to make it, you know. I think uh, the Beatles had a lot more power to do that on a whim, whereas we didn't really have that facility, you know. My purpose in this interview is to talk about your recent efforts and your songwriting style, not to get into these XTC band political issues. But since I got you, it's so tempting to just <laughs> retread some of this ground a little bit. No, that's fine, Mark. No, I really don't mind talking about it. You know, it's common knowledge anyway. I mean, another unstable thing in the Beatles was just the fact that, oh, you know, George Harrison is the junior songwriter. He's more or less learning on the job, but is very good at it. And of course, it, you know, it wasn't too many years before he became dissatisfied with that role in the band. And so comparably, if Andy was the sole songwriter when you folks started and then you started doing that and, you know, obviously there wasn't room for three songwriters, <laughs> but there was at least room for two, but not two equals necessarily and so i would have expected then you know to have some explosion of a colin solo album or something or did you feel like that still the songwriting was not a daily itch that you were scratching uh such that you would be creating all this pent-up material that is the focus of your life well i think in the early days i've it was very much a george harrison situation whereby andy was the sole songwriter and um all the bad ones that he wrote, he could get out of his system even before we came into the public eye, you know. I had to get rid of my bad ones in the public eye, that's the thing. So um, it's not easy making a buffoon of yourself you know, in front of everybody, but uh, you just got to do it if you want to get to the good stuff. So um, I think when Barry left, it was a kind of a catalyst. It, certainly set something off in me that the makeup of the band is very it's a funny thing personalities have they influence other personalities you know when he left it seemed to set something off in me and then i wrote all this stuff around drums and wires and black sea period you know and a few hits and that was a big surprise especially for me so i guess that's the question is how you go from that to then being on the apple venus stuff to being more back in a Harrison role in terms of two songs in this album, three songs in this album. Again, was that just because there was so much material stored up? And so percentage-wise, if Andy had written two or three times as much as you had in that time, then it was still a representative sampling of what you'd been doing. Or was that, again, another point of contention that you had all these extra songs that had no outlet at that point? There were songs, but some songs don't receive the kind of favorable response that you'd think they're going to get. If the band really don't fancy rehearsing them or whatever, then there's very little you can do. I mean, you could say that about where did the ordinary people go? I think I brought it up for non-such all those years ago, but it just didn't find favor with anybody. And so I kind of thinking, oh, all right. Well, I guess it's not as good as I thought it was then. It went for many years where we didn't do anything with it. And then around 2002, I'm still not clear where it, it, I think it came out in some sort of supplement form, as did say it. And there are these kind of things floating around which uh, we didn't do anything with, you know. And I'm thinking, well, we should have done because judging by the reaction that they get now, it's kind of, oh, people did like it after all. And very often the band are not always the best judge of their own material. Well, yes, you've provided us a nice transition to our final segment here, which is just Ordinary People. So this is another sort of civic pride song, kind of like Kenny, where you're mourning something about the more human pre-technological age of England, perhaps. Yeah, say something about the content and the style of this before folks hear this. 
Okay, folks, this is a song that originally came up for the Non-Such album in 1992 with XTC. It's called Where Did the Ordinary People Go? And it's pretty much a song about, you know, how people become a bit more insular, especially when they they get a bit more money by them. And I don't know, the fences seem to get higher the more money you earn. And I just wanted to say, well, not the way it should be. It should be more inclusive. I just think we're kind of squirreling ourselves away from from each other and becoming more separate, you know. It seems to think that, that when people get more money, they, they get a car and the windows are kind of tinted windows, the darkened windows that they've never seen, you know. So you don't get to see these people who are your next-door neighbors. I think maybe years ago, if I'm not mistaken, there was just seemed a bit more community spirit. But I think when you get a bit of money or when people get a bit more money by them, they tend to keep themselves a bit more separate, maybe in a kind of elitist sort of way. They want to mix with people who have the same amount of money. I don't know. It doesn't make for a, a very good society, I don't think. And did you feel pretty good about the recording on this one, or was this, like, Say It, another that was sort of... <laughs> no, it pretty much went the same way as Say It, really. I don't even know where or, where or when it came out. I think it was around 2002, 2003. 2005 single is what I had read. That's what I recall it coming out. But I guess that was way after the fact. Or did it come out on the box set? I, possibly. I'm not sure. It came out in a supplementary way, put it that way. It was not a fully-fledged album track, which I had always intended it to have been. But these things happen. Sometimes they find favor with the band and they want to rehearse it. Oh, yeah, we've got to rehearse that one. That's a good one, that one. And other times they're kind of... Nothing's said, so you get the vibe coming your way. You know, you think, well, all right, well, we won't be doing that one then. Judging by the reaction it's received on the internet of the version we did in this supplementary way, then maybe the band were a bit hasty and perhaps we should have done it as a fully-fledged album track. I think we recorded it in Andy's shed. So the drums you hear are very much kind of machine drums, really. Uh, maybe it deserves an- another outing out. It deserves another go to be recorded a lot better. Might consider it, but I, it's tough when it comes out because you know that there's, it's out and people have digested it. It's common knowledge on the internet. So it's tough kind of having another go, you know. If I did have another go at this particular track, I think I would probably not make it the central thrust of the project and there would have to be other material, new material to the fore. And this would have to be the last track <laughs> or something. Yes, the internet says Ralph Salmons was the drummer. So it's not just Drum Machine. I don't oh, right. <laughs> Maybe the internet is lying <laughs> if you don't remember that. I always thought that um, it was a programmed drum thing that Andy did. Ah, um, so maybe you weren't even there when the drums were recorded. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, that just goes to show how things were fragmenting at the time, the last days of Rome or something. All right, and just since because I, I haven't asked you about this yet, <laughs> I think this is a, a great example of XTC harmonies in this one, although it all sounds like your voice. Can you say a little about how the choices go into where the vocals are going to be layered? I mean, you've, you've got the, you know, it's, it's definitely not a identifiable Beatles let it be situation of two people or, you know, any, any sort of live band sounding situation of people standing next to each other and harmonizing in that way that you've got harmonies on top and then you've got a low, low octave come in. They kind of, again, just like so much of the other aspects of your recording is a exercise in layering and sort of sonically shaping what you want to happen at any given point. Can you say a little about the process, you know, on this song in particular, say? Well, as I said, with bass playing, it's pretty much the same with singing as well. 
In this situation, we didn't have the clock ticking at the real expensive studio. You can try things out. You can sing the main line. You think, well, what harmony would fit? Maybe we could do a low voice as well to bolster things up. It's a kind of a feel thing, really. There's no rules, really. You, you just feel it out. It's intuitive. When The more you do it, the better at it you get. It becomes evident where the, where the harmonies should go, and some of them are too sweet, so you think, well, no, that's not quite right. It's all a case of just trying it out and, uh, and see what happens, and maybe there's a counter-harmony that we can put in here and stuff, you know. It's just coming up with ideas, you know, and trying them. But you have that facility if you have your own studio and you can record when and when you like. So even given the like the ah on say it, there are things that you have recorded with background vocals that are too sweet that you actually just leave out then, you're saying? If they're too obvious, yes. Very often things that come from your subconscious are so much better than the conscious ones. The subconscious, it's a murky world, but Andy has this kind of expression about defeating the editor. There is an editor in everybody which rounds things up and just makes things ordinary. I think you've got to try and defeat the editor and come up with something that's spontaneous, that springs from your subconscious. And the only way to do it is just kind of stick a mic in front of you and say, right, just see what happens. And very often, there's a little nugget of goodness there, you know. But very often when you work things out and you get it in the studio, you think, oh, actually, I don't actually like what we've worked out. And that's why to think about something too much is bad news, you know. You're never going to defeat the editor that way. So just take the simple elements of the song and then just busk over the top of it and see what kind of happens. You kind of let rip and just see what happens. It's an intuitive thing. Well, that is a great point to wrap up on. Thank you so much, Colin, for your time. I really appreciate it. No, that's fine, Mark. I think we've got a nice, handsome lot of stuff there, don't you think? Definitely, definitely. so much A line of fortresses Look but don't touch I'd like to call on my neighbors one day But their doberman won't look the other way There's one thing I'd like to know Where did the ordinary people go?
Thanks again so much to Colin. So very good to hear some new XTC sort of music. Again, I was quite obsessed with this band in my college years. I eagerly awaited each new release, which is very difficult because they went on strike between 1991's Nonsuch and 1999's Apple Venus Volume 1. Andy Partridge, the principal songwriter for XTC, is one of the first people that I contacted when I started this podcast to try to get him on. And though I suppose that could still happen at some point, there have been whole books of him explaining his songs. I think he's rather burned out on doing that. So after the band broke up, Andy released something like 10 CDs worth of demos, including a lot of songs that were not included on anything else, as the Fuzzy Warbles series. So I ate those up. And for the most part, since then, he's just done writing projects, like a collaboration with Zappa guitarist Mike Keneally, and some things where he would do instruments, and Peter Blegvad would read poetry over it, or he'd just record instrumentals, or produce other people. And Colin's appearances have just been vocals here and there on these prog box things. You can look Colin's name up on Spotify. You can hear him sing like a Pink Floyd cover and a thing with Rick Wakeman. He sings lead on a song by Days Between Stations, so I'll link to some of these things as they appear on YouTube from the blog post accompanying this. But the point is, this TCNI, even though it's an EP, is really the closest to an XTC album that we've gotten in a damn long time. So I hope these guys figure out how to navigate the new musical financial landscape in order to keep putting out music. Hey, I hope you go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and check out all the other fine interviews that I've got for you. Like, say, the one with Anton Barbeau, who put me in touch with Collins people, thanks to Anton, and to Shauna McLarnon, who actually set this up. My most recent interview has been with Lindsay Murray, who puts out music as Gretchen's Wheel. Probably the next episode I'm going to release will be with Nick Solomon of the Bevis Frond, another guy I got in touch with through Anton. If you like XTC, you will probably also like the Bevis Frond. And unlike Colin and Andy, Nick has put out lots and lots and lots of music every year. So there's plenty to feast on. You can follow this podcast on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. Please go to the iTunes store or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this and leave a nice rating or review for the podcast. And most of all, I'm aiming by episode 100 here for this podcast to be financially self-sustaining. So I'm asking you to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and make a small per episode pledge. And if I can't get like 100 people to do that... By the time I'm releasing episode 100, then I don't know that I should keep doing these. Maybe I'll just record about philosophy and stop doing these music interviews, but I don't know. I don't know if I can restrain myself, at least when folks like Colin Molding are on offer. It was really a pleasure to be able to get to talk to him and ask all the things I've been wondering about all these years. I feel inspired. I hope you feel inspired. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Wintermeyer signing off. <laughs>